you all to um, get uh, to the back and go and see the stand that Tony's got there uh, for the Bible Society and uh, would love you to talk to him about how you can support if there's a way you can give and help them as well. That would be great as well as seeing the material they have as well. Yesterday I went and spoke at the men's breakfast at Faguna Baptist and part of that whole uh, speaking at the men's breakfast was to share my testimony and I remembered coming away from uh, just yesterday's sharing of the way in which uh, God has uh, led and spoken and revealed himself to me, it left me coming away with just a real sense of thankfulness. Thankfulness for the gospel. Thankfulness for the, the life that I have because God sent his son and for the way in which he's revealed himself to me and I've responded. And as I look back in my life, I reckon there was a real time where whether I would respond to the gospel or not was in the balance. What happened was when I was 18 or 19, there was a couple of mates of mine who went to church and all of us were just left school and starting to work and we had a lot more money than we'd ever had and we all thought we knew quite a lot uh, in life, you know, as young men do. And so what we started to do is we would go out to the evening service at church and then afterwards, when that was finished, we would go off to a place called the Billabong. I don't know if you remember them. They were like uh, food places. But the difference between this is they had sort of like an eating section and a bar section very close to each other. And I remember us going off together uh, a little while, me and about six of my mates together and having coffees after church. And then eventually, as we started going each Sunday after church, some of them started to have a beer. You know, I remember one of my mates, Brady Booth, used to hold up the beer and he'd say, good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. And everyone would laugh and we'd uh, have a beer. And he was talking about, you know, Jesus at the wine at the communion, so it's good enough for me. And eventually more and more of the people after church, uh, as we sat down together, not only would have one drink, but it started to be two. And then what started to happen is the culture of that group became a place where we felt it was okay to talk uh, down about people in the church. You know, maybe some youth group leader who was a bit daggy, you know, and all of a sudden what started out as going to the after church for coffee became a place where a culture was forming that without many people even realising it, was going against the heart of the gospel. And instead of it becoming a place where we encouraged and nurtured each other, it became a place where people actually started to stop going to church first and ended up going to the pub instead of going to church. And what happened was more and more started to choose this lifestyle. And it got to a point where I had to make a decision. I had to say to myself, am I going to keep going and with the fear of being taken away down a road that would lead away or am I going to stop going? And I can imagine looking back at that time when I made that decision, writing a letter. If I know what I know now about what's happened to those guys and how they've sort of gone away, I'd imagine what it would have been like if I'd sat down and write, dear boys, you know, the boys we used to call ourselves, you know, I'm writing to you to let you know what's been happening. Over the last few weeks, you know, months, what turned into just having coffees has been coming to have too many beers. 
And what's happened is the talk at these things has become negative and people are actually moving further and further away in their faith in our group. And I fear for you. I'm urging you to take some drastic action, guys. Stop going. I wouldn't normally say this, but because of the culture that's formed, I want you to stop going. And I don't want anyone to go there after church. I love you so much. Can you imagine me writing a letter like that? I wish I had. I wish I'd written a letter warning those people of what was happening because many of them stopped going to the church, kept going to the pub and moved further and further away from God. I took some steps that were drastic, but I'm so glad I did because I kept growing in my faith. We come today to look at this passage and I've already shared with you much about the context of this book, uh, 1 Timothy. But what we'll find as we look right at the start, and if you have 1 Timothy with you open, it would be great to have a look at that. But as we look at the very start, we've talked about the very reason why Paul wrote this letter. And what we always have to remember that with the epistles, they're letters. They're letters from real people to real circumstances. And Paul was writing a letter to a church, the church in Ephesus, and he was writing it predominantly for Timothy as the person that he'd left there, but also so that the whole church would hear what Paul was saying in his letter. And we see, we've looked at this before, but in verse 3 is the heart of why he's, he's writing. He says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. And you remember that we looked back in the, in the book of Acts where we saw that there was, a, in Acts 20, you can flick across to there if you, if you would like now, Acts 20 and verse 17 And, and what had actually happened in Acts 20 and, and, and verse 17, Paul was about to go and he, he shared that while he was with them, he tried to live in a way that was honest and was helpful. And he said, now I'm, I'm really sad in verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He didn't believe he was going to come back. Therefore, I declare to you that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I've really, without hesitating, I've proclaimed to you the whole will of God. And then he says to this, to the elders at Ephesus, this is the book, the people who are receiving this letter of 1 Timothy. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church, which he has bought with his blood. And listen to what he says here. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in amongst you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, even from your own number, elders, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Here's the elders at Ephesus getting a warning from from Paul that this would happen in the future. And Paul, as we know, went and visited uh, Ephesus later on. He was so alarmed that he left Timothy in uh, Ephesus. And later when he got to Macedonia, he wrote back this letter. And it was written to a specific 
group of people in a specific time who were facing problems of false teachers amongst them, elders that were right there in the midst of it. Now, last week, we looked at how Paul had been addressing in chapter 2, going on from chapter 1 as he urged him to, to command those false teachers not to teach uh, false doctrines. Uh, we, we, he described a little bit of what was going on in the, in the first chapter. And then Paul shared some of his testimony about God had saved him and it was by grace alone that he'd been saved. And then he came back at the end of chapter 1 to say, fight the good fight. You know, be strong, Timothy, in standing up to these false teachers. Why? Because some have shipwrecked their faith and gone away from the truth. It's urgent time. And then in chapter 2, Paul now starts to address specific issues that were coming up out of the false teachers' teaching and that were affecting the people. And remember last week we looked from verses 1 to 8 how it looks initially like this is about prayer. And some people say Paul in his ageing years after the glow of ministry sits down and writes leisurely a letter to Timothy, you know, giving him all his wisdom like a big old granddad, you know. But nothing could be further from the truth. He he is at the end of his ministry, that's true. But the truth is that Paul is writing specifically to address false teaching. And so when he writes, he's not just saying that we should pray, uh, but we should pray for everyone. Why? Because the false teachers were saying that there were a certain exclusivity to the gospel and you had to know myths and these old wives' tales and endless genealogies in order to be saved. And Paul is saying, instead of just focusing on the few people that can be saved, remember that Christ died for all. So pray for everyone, even pagan leaders, pray for them. Why? Because Christ came and he died for all people. And and that was the reason he was saying it, because that's what the false teachers were doing. And in the start of this passage that we're looking at today, Paul continues on to address the false teaching. And we see it in the first part of this uh, first verse of the section. He says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. Now, we know this is addressing the false teachings because we remember seeing that what was happening was the false teaching in chapter 1 and verse 4 was saying that they devote themselves to endless myths and genealogies and these promote controversies rather than God's word. So controversies are happening because of the false teaching and Paul says, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And one of the things we do when we're looking at a a, a letter is we need to be very careful to try and figure out what was God's word to the people then and appropriate for that context. And then we have to understand what of that applies to us today. Now, in this verse, it's very interesting because we already have understood this verse, many of us, in a way that says some of it doesn't apply to us. Does anyone want to have a guess at what doesn't apply to us? <laughs> Lifting up holy hands in prayer, yeah? Because we've just disobeyed that about three times already this morning, haven't we? Because there's been hardly anyone in this place that as we've prayed have lifted up holy hands because of this word. But what the heart of this thing that Paul's saying here is, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer, but the point he's making is without anger or without disputing. 
So he's saying, instead of fighting and arguing, I want you to pray. And the prayer, lifting up holy hands, was a way that Jewish people did. It's right through the Old Testament. But he wasn't saying, I want this to be a law that everyone has to hold their hands when they pray. But he's saying, I want you to pray instead of disputing and fighting. People say, well, this is only saying that only men should pray. No, that's not the point at all. He's stopping people from, uh, wants them to stop arguing and start praying. And, and when it says everywhere, what happened in the churches there, it was not one like ours. In those days, there were a number of house churches. Early on, we know that there were at least two house churches in Ephesus. And, and we know that as time went on, and by the time of this letter, there's possibly six to eight house churches, each with about 150 people in, and each with different elders that were teaching. So Paul's saying, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands without anger or disputing. Instead of getting caught up in the controversies that the false teachers are, stop it and start praying. I want you to pray. Then he turns to women and he he talks to them, first of all, in in this sort of way. And and now what we have to realise, if he's talking to the men about uh, confronting the false teaching, now he's addressing to the women and he's starting to address false teaching and how, because of the false teaching, they should act. So we've got to look and ask, what are there in the pastoral epistles that kind of points to false teaching taking place affecting the women? And look what it says in 2 Timothy 3, 5 to 9. It says, having a form of godliness, this is the false teachers, but denying its power, have nothing to do with those people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. That, is that what WWW stands for? No. World Wide Web. Oh, good. Thank you. But these false teachers were worming their way into homes to gain control over weak-willed women who were, loaded, who were loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, they are, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jumbrays opposed Moses, so also these men, the false teachers, uh, men of depraved, they oppose the truth. Men of deprived minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far. As is the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. So this is clearly saying in Second Timothy that women were being affected by the false teaching. In fact, the false teachers were finding a really ripe harvest amongst the women, especially women who were... Uh, staying at home and and who were single widows. Look what it says in 1 Timothy, the same letter we're writing to. So this is about the same circumstances that he's writing to. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verses uh, 11 to 15, it says, As for younger widows, and these are women in the same context that he's writing to, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires... So there's something a little bit going on there. Uh, Overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they bring judgment upon themselves because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, this is what these women are doing here in Ephesus. They 
get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things they ought not to. Saying things they ought not to. So Paul says, so I counsel younger women, younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. That gives us a bit of a picture of what is going on already with the women. And it's interesting if you look down there at verse 15, it says, some have in fact already turned away following Satan. So there are women in the church being led astray by false teachers and some have already turned away to follow Satan. And Paul's advice to them in 1 Timothy 5, 3 to 16, in, in this, in this uh, particularly 14, is get married, have children, and manage your homes. Why? So that people outside the church will not find any reason to slander you. I think all of that is really helpful as we come to look at the passage this morning because we know Timothy is con- Paul is continuing to address false teaching and having all that in our mind as we start to understand what uh, Paul is saying is very helpful. First of all, Paul addresses in this situation what the way people dress, the way women dress in Ephesus. He says, I want women to dress modestly and with, with full decency and propriety. Not with propriety, Mandy told me off before that I'm saying that wrong. Remember the other week I said something wrong too, didn't I? Um, <laughs> just once, yeah, yeah. Now, what was it I said last time? Can you remember? There's something funny. Anyway, it was one of the sins, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, I said perjurers instead of perjurers. Remember that? <laughs> so there we go, I'm fallible. If that's the worst thing I get wrong today, I'm very happy. <laughs> so the first thing he addresses is the dress of the women. He says, I want them to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. What he's saying is, I want you to dress in a way that is not drawing attention to yourself because in that culture, a woman who dressed up was actually showing that they're on the on the lookout for someone. And for a husband to have his wife dressing up was actually something in society people would look at to be absolutely uh, terrible. Like she was dressing up to make herself pretty for a man. And when she's married, that's horrible. And people in the culture would have looked and said, that is horrible. And so Paul says, in order that the gospel is not brought into disrepute, I want you to dress in a way that is decent and appropriate. Now, I want you to notice that if you came today with braids in your hair, anyone got braids in your hair? You, you can relax. It's not particularly talking about braids or 
gold, or even expensive clothes. What the heart of this, this uh, verse, these two verses is saying, that we want you to, to dress in a way that is uh, appropriate and is not going to bring disrespect. So if braids this morning, anyone think braids are inappropriate here this morning? No, they're not. You can wear braids, and if you want to wear gold, that's fine. It's not inappropriate in our culture, but in that culture, people were looking at them and saying, that woman is not <coughs> looking for, to her husband alone. She's looking for other people, and it's terrible. And Paul says, that has got to stop. Start living in a way that has appropriate deeds for women who worship and profess God, to worship God. The second thing that comes through is that Paul says, I want you women, in the light of all this that's going on, to have a quiet and submissive spirit. He says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Again, in the culture of that day, not only dressing up and looking like you were someone who was you know, um, on the look, was not only... Uh, something that was a, a sort of sexual thing that was saying I'm available, but it was also completely insubordinate to your husband. It was showing that you didn't love him, you didn't respect him, you, didn't, you weren't there for him. And women that were dressing up uh, were, were in danger of showing that they were rebelling against their husband. Not only that, were some of these women who had been affected in the way before, it seems, had been... Uh, idle and going about from house to house and saying things that they ought not to. So they've been talking to the false teachers and been getting affected by them and going around from house to house, it seems, sharing some of the false teaching. And Paul says in this time, I, I don't want you to teach because the things that you're teaching are not right. You, you, you're pre perpetuating the false teachings, it seems. I don't want a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. You should come under submission to him rather than living in a way that looks like you're defying him by dressing, by talking loudly and, and making it look like you don't even love your husband. And in this thing, Paul says, that's not to happen. It's not to take place. And then this next verse comes and kind of says, looks weird here, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Now, this looks um, just to stick out there by itself, but when we understand what was happening in the time, this is support for a quiet and uh, not disruptive demeanour in worship. And the logic goes like this. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was the one deceived by Satan, just as this, some of the women already, you remember we heard before, were listening to, Satan, to the false teachers and had been led away by Satan, had already been moved away. So in the same way, as Eve came to the serpent, heard the false teaching and said, look, I'll take that, and she sinned, and then she went to Adam, and he also sinned. What they're saying is the same thing's happening. You women are responding to the false teaching here at Ephesus, and you're 
owning it and taking it. And the danger is that just like what that happened there, everybody can be affected by your and deceived by the way you're being deceived. Notice how it says, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So he's now moving from Eve to the women that are there as well and saying, as we look back here, the same thing that happened there in Genesis is in danger of, of happening here. Women responding and leading others astray. The final part of this verse says, but women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Salvation, I think is what Paul's saying here, lies in accepting the role of the mother for the women in Ephesus, provided they are true women of faith. So what Paul is saying to the women at Ephesus, he's saying, you will be saved as you have children and as you continue to do the same kind of things that we see happening back here in, um, let me go back to it. I counsel younger women to marry, to have children, to manage their homes and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. And Paul's saying the same thing here as he's saying to those widows, that women, you need to live in a kind of way that is doing godly things rather than hanging around, talking at home, busybodying, being, you know, going from house to house, sharing all these uh, you know, false teachings and, and getting caught up in this and spending all this time being gossipy and being caught up in that. And Paul's saying, I don't want you women to do that. What I want you to do is realise that you will be saved through doing, accepting your mother role and, and, and only if you are a true, genuine woman of faith. There's been many people that have tried to come up with what that actually means um, through different ways. And some people have said women will be saved when they bear children, you know, but that can't be true, can it? There's been so many people that have died giving birth to children. Some people say they'll be saved from the false teachers. But Paul never uses the term saved as in uh, just helped get out of a situation. Saved for Paul is salvation. And what Paul is saying, just like I knew was the right thing to do at the Billabong on Sunday, afternoon, Sunday nights after church, was that... In, they need to choose to live a life of godliness, doing what they feel God has called them to do, and then they will be saved. They will live out the salvation that God has called them to. And just like for me, I knew what I needed to do. Paul was telling them, this is how godly people should live, and this is what you should do. Now, it's hard to deny that this passage that we've looked at today um, prohibits the women teaching the men in Ephesus church. That's clear. What Paul was saying is he didn't want the women in the church in Ephesus to teach the men. But when we come to understand what it meant then and how it applies to us today, we just can't look at this one verse and say, 
because Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach, that that means that it applies directly to us today. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd like to turn to 2 Timothy 4.13. 2 Timothy 4.13 is where Paul says these words. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchment. Now, has anyone ever been tempted to go and get Paul's cloak? Anyone? No? Anyone tried to find the parchments? We kind of know straight away that that verse is not for us today, is it? We know that Paul doesn't want us to act in any way in, in regards to that. It's a cultural verse, and although this is the word of God and this was the word, this was directly given to uh, Timothy to say, bring the cloak. And we don't have to do anything about that. It's obvious. But then there are other times when we know that there's a word directly given to Timothy, but it does affect us, like 2 Timothy 2, maybe 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, sorry. It says there, endure hardship with us like a good soldier in Christ. Now, we know that that was Paul talking to Timothy. But does that mean we can't learn from that verse today? No, no, we can. We know that this verse also teaches that we should endure hardship with, with our, like, a, like a soldier in Christ. But it wasn't written to me, it was written to Timothy, but it applies to me because the truth in it is timeless. You get that so far? The difficulty we get is when we get to passages like the one today where uh, it's not clear and some people would say it's obvious that he's saying for all time and for all eternity that women should not preach. And those people look right at the whole of the context and say none of it fits together. It's just Paul giving advice randomly in verses together. But you have to figure out why is he saying that right here if it's got nothing to do with false teachers. And the way I think we should look at this verse today is to say that it definitely forbade women in Ephesus teaching in, in, that, in that period of time. But what I think we need to be very careful about is to understand that it's the unique text in the New Testament in this area. Evidence from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 indicates that there are gifts of the Holy Spirit that God gives and teaching is one of them. And never in in that passage does Paul say that it's only for one. Or, or, or for males or females. We see time and time again the role of women in the New Testament. We see Priscilla and Aquila uh, teaching Apollos in Acts 18, 26. And Paul describes in Romans uh, Priscilla as his fellow worker in Romans, so a highly valued worker. Uh, Junus Junius was a female who Paul describes as an outstanding apostle in Romans 16:7, and Anna, a prophetess in the temple, spoke 
and taught and prophesied. Luke chapter 2 and verses 36 to 38. This text is the only text of its kind where there is an express command by Paul for women not to teach. And when you interpret a text in its context like this and it goes against the whole flow of the New Testament, do you know what I think we've got to be very careful to do? Is to use one text to interpret a whole New Testament. And I think... Not only should we be careful to do that, we should handle God's word well and do what he calls us as a church and as people to do. The New Testament overwhelmingly gives a picture that in Christ a new community is formed. And in this community there's neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew or Gentile, but we're all one in Christ. And you'll remember in Genesis, when the sin occurred, uh, in Genesis 3.16, one of the uh, judgments for sin was that for a woman, her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. Now, that's a direct result of sin. And in the new community, there's people serving one another, using the gifts to encourage and build up one another. And this is all not through stopping 50% of the population from using a gift in teaching, but through surrendering ourselves to Christ and living the good news of the gospel as a result. I want to tell you today, I don't believe that this passage stops women from teaching. I believe we could use this passage today if there was a group of you that started meeting together, watching Oprah every day, and you were starting to go from house to house, and you were starting to really affect what were happening. And if some of you started standing up in small groups and talking about that and spreading that around, do you know what I would do? I would probably take the same action. I'd say, I do not permit a woman to preach and speak and teach for this period of time. And you know what? If there were men that were doing the same thing and if the men were starting to really infect and affect everybody with false teaching, we would need to take drastic measures to ensure that the gospel was not messed with. So the question for you today is, is there anything stopping you from going deeper and stronger in love with Jesus and his gospel? I mean, are there things that you're believing from people that you're gathering with? Maybe they're gossips and idols and busybodies who are just uh, wanting to get your ear and feed yuck into you. And the end result is that you end up thinking that the, the Bible is something that can control us and, you know, uh, and it's terrible. Uh, I just... Join with Paul and say, do whatever it takes to separate, to live a godly, holy life and live the way that God has called you to do. The context here of women having to get married and have children and do that, that's a great, noble, honourable thing. But, you know, I think uh, for women today, the, the, the heart of the passage is not that every woman all time marry and have children and be domestic. The heart of the passage is that every woman do everything that they can to follow the gospel 
and live it to the full. And if God calls you and leads you to be married and have children, you'll be doing exactly what he wants. But if he calls you and gifts you to lead a company or to uh, preach or to do anything, obey him fully and do that. God is wanting our church to be the one that continues to preach and teach the gospel. And nothing should stop women who have the gift in teaching using their gifts. I, I know that God uses women enormously when they handle God's word. I know it's true. Uh, 60 years ago, my grandfather and grandmother, uh, my grandfather, an ordained Baptist minister, went around the country uh, doing different ministries at different churches, interims, often going for one year, two years. And right next to him, Joy Stark, my grandma, preached regularly. Uh, she was a gifted preacher. They had children and 40 years ago, my Auntie Pam was one of the first Baptist women who was uh, applied for ordination as a deaconess in the church. She was the first one that had ever uh, been um, accepted as, for ordination as a deaconess. And she preached and she taught and many people were blessed through her uh, teaching. Um, not long ago, actually a little over 12 years ago, 10, 11, 12 years ago, Mandy Stark came to our church. Her name was Mandy Cocking in those days. And she preached. And part of what got my heart was her passion for God and her love for his word. And when she preached, people responded. And today, it still happens whenever she speaks. We're going to get her preaching in a few more weeks. I don't want to put the mockers on you there, honey. <laughs> but when Gail Hill speaks, I hear God speaking to me. He challenges me. He leads me. I am uh, so thrilled that when I came to this church to hear that Graham Smith encouraged and supported the role of women in the church and helping them to do whatever they would like and preach and teach. And I want to encourage you. I'm not someone who just tolerates women preaching. I think they've had a bad deal. And I want to be someone who I think encourages women in every way to use whatever gift you have for the glory of God so that the gospel can be proclaimed, lives can be changed, and people can come to know Jesus just in the way that we have. So women, go get them. Let's pray. God, this morning, we just thank you that uh, you've saved us. Oh, God, thank you that we've come to know your grace. And we just pray for women in our church today who maybe many years ago you challenged to, for them to, to handle your word well and to preach and teach, but fear held them back. Oh, God, I pray this morning that you would breathe again your call into their hearts and their lives. God, we pray that you would raise up from our church many people who handle your word so well, whether they be male or female. And Lord, that we would be a church that opens our heart every time when someone with the gift of preaching and teaching handles your word. And may gender not be a disqualification for our minds and our hearts. 
And may we listen for your sweet voice in everything. So God, have your way. God, raise up women who love you dearly. We pray that there would be so many of us, male or female, living for your cause, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.